Hello, our listeners. Great to see you again. And today we invite Professor David Jason. Jason is university professor at the College of Law of Syracuse University in the United States. Join us to discuss the、uh, his opinions on U.S. Inflation Reduction Act and the relevant issues. Ah,、uh, yes. Hello. Thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. It's great to be with you all. So, give a very short introduction of Professor Jason.、Uh, he focuses on the role of economic thought in environmental law and on、uh, constitutional. And Jason engages also in public service,、uh, defending democracy, environmental laws, constitutionality, and efforts to combat the climate crisis. And in the end of this podcast, I also want Professor Jason to share his main idea based on his new book. Published by Stanford University Press,、uh, titled "The Specter of Dictatorship: Judicial Enabling of Presidential Power." So, yeah, I, I think、uh, now let's、uh, move to our major discussion about the Inflation Reduction Act. So, when this law came out,、uh, just it gave a very big surprise to many observers and policy、uh, analysts. So, Professor Jason. What was your first impression with this law? Well, I mean, I was as surprised as anybody else that this happened.、Uh, first of all,、uh, we were not expecting much progress or any progress. And、uh, Senator Schumer, I know, has said that to that he believes that he can get Manchin on board for what they need to do. He hadn't done that with the Voting Rights Act, but he did pull it off with climate.、Uh, Senator Schumer is the majority leader, the Democratic leader in the Senate.、Um, You know, it was—it's really a, a remarkable achievement. It provides a lot of、uh, financial support, primarily in the form of tax credits to all sorts of clean energy、uh, infrastructure. And、uh, it's not as ambitious as what Biden first tried to accomplish in the Build Back Better bill, but it's、uh, certainly the most constructive thing we've seen from the U.S. Congress on climate since the 1990s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the the, the passing of this law,、uh, the reason we felt very surprised is because for a long time, many people see the politics in Washington D.C. has been deadlocked. But、uh, since the Biden administration took the power, many people also argue that okay, this very senior, very old politician、uh, is a transitional figure of the politics in the United States. Under the confrontational environment and the and the,、uh, the context in the,、uh, both chambers of houses, it's hard for many people to see. Okay, Biden can achieve some meaningful、uh, law act, but in the recent time, not only climate change, but also like、uh, the Chips Science Act, the gun control law, and many others has been passed. So what I want to ask is that how can you assess the resilience of American uh, law uh, making process? We have a two-party system, first of all, and the confrontation between the two parties is still awful. It's very polarized, and it's not no different with the climate bill. I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act got not one Republican vote, and this is very different. From what prevailed into the 1990s, from the 1970s into the 1990s, the Republicans were fully on board with environmental policy. They had maybe more concerns about it doing being costly, but they wanted 
environmental protection. That was sort of a point of consensus. It was just a question of how to do it. And that's, that hasn't changed. And during times when Congress is divided or a different party of the president, it's hard to make progress. Although even then there are areas where there's agreement and they move forward. But bad as things are, the Democrats right now have a majority in the House and they have an even split in the Senate, which means that they can keep themselves together. They can pass legislation because when it's a 50-50 tie in the Senate, Vice President Kamala Harris, who's the president of the Senate under the Constitution, gets to pass the tie-breaking vote. So the Democrats can, can pass legislation without Republican support, at least in the spending and taxing area. Because the rules of the Senate, in effect, demand a 60-vote supermajority, and that means you have to have Republicans, and there's not that much you can do. But with respect to, we've seen some things done in a bipartisan way, first of all. But on this, uh, it really took unifying the Democratic Party and obtaining, uh, overcoming the objections of Joe Manchin, who's a Democratic senator from a very red state, West Virginia, with a lot of coal-fired power plants, where the Democratic Senate, they've had Democratic senators for a long time, and he and his predecessor have all been about protecting the coal industry. So that's been difficult. But Biden and the majority leader, Senator Schumer, have been able to pull it off. Yeah, I think the passing this law has uh, produced a lot of debate and uh, uh, discussion about the international climate policy. I read a piece from Foreign Affairs by former uh, U.S. Energy Information Administrator, uh, Dr. Richard Newell, who argued that uh, the American climate law will produce a huge influence uh, in global climate policy. So the next question I want to ask you, uh, not only the domestic energy transition of the U.S., because you said a lot of the credits, uh, tax credits and, uh, and uh, grant uh, schemes to support the domestic manufacturing of the low-carbon technology, um, but also the international climate policy, because under the Paris uh, Climate Accord, uh, U.S. renewed uh, ambition on climate change can really produce some initiative to other players like China and the EU. So how do you think the significance of this climate law towards the domestic energy transition and the international policy on climate change? Well, I think... Um... Domestically, uh, with this bill, the U.S. is sort of on track to get 40% reductions from 2005 levels by 2030. The bill itself only contributes 10 or 30, 13% of that, but there are other things going on like state policies and uh, declining emissions because of COVID. And so with all that together, they're projecting around a 40%. That's not what we need. We've pledged 50 and we really need to do that. But it's, it's a very substantial movement. So that's a good thing. That gives us more credibility to try to encourage other countries uh, to do more. And, uh, you know, we need that. The U.S. needs to be a leader on this. It's hard to be a leader when you're not doing much, you know. <laughs> so that's, that's helpful. Um, I think when the negotiators of each uh, member country of the U.N. Uh, gathered in Egypt, by the end of this year to talk about the renewed NDCs because after uh, Glasgow last year, members are required to report their NDC uh, in a year basis, not like every five years. 
So I think U.S. has something to present in front of others. And do you think this uh, climate law can pressure other players like uh, China and other uh, low-permitted countries to raise their NDC target? Good. Well, that's how, I'm glad to hear that. I'm hoping that's the case. Uh, we sure need it. So it's a good start. And, and uh, you know, it's possible this law is going to perform better than expected because there's a certain momentum building. But it's not only this law, it's all these state laws. And it's not even only the laws. Like there's a huge amount of investment capital right now that's pressuring companies to clean up. And they're, they're beginning to, you know, strategically shift a little bit. And there's also the pressure from these court suits in Europe. Um, so there's a lot of factors that I think are causing companies to see the, the writing on the wall and that, you know, the fossil fuels is not the industry of the future. So this, this may have a bigger impact than it does on paper because of the, there's a certain amount of momentum building. I hope, certainly hope that's the case. And, Boy, if it catalyzes more international action, that'd be great. We still have some work to do here, but it's a good step. I agree that the momentum building is happening in different levels. Uh, this is a federal level, but also state level, municipal city level, and even the business uh, uh, field. But as dynamic as American political system, I think uh, this law might have some challenges in front. Uh, what I'm talking about this is because you know, this is a two-party uh, system, and this law is passed by Democratic-dominant uh, houses and also under Democrat uh, White House. But what do what do you think? Uh, are there any possibility that Republicans will appeal to the Supreme Supreme Court to um, constrict uh, the impact of this climate law? Well, I I. See, the Republicans will probably bring a challenge. I, I'd be shocked if it was successful. And the reason is the federalism concerns that were at issue in Obamacare just are not here. So Obamacare, the, the claim was that Congress, the one claim was that Congress was exceeding its power under the Commerce Clause, which is the primary source of authority to do environmental regulation. Um, and the, the claim was that by regulating the whole health care system that traditionally been a state responsibility, that was a violation of the Commerce Clause. Well, this legislation is taking place under a different clause of the Constitution that has always been much more liberally interpreted, the Taxing and Spending Clause. And there really isn't much I mean, real limitations on the federal power to tax and spend. And in particular, the issue that did arise about that in the Obamacare case isn't going to arise here. That was the notion that by telling states that they had to increase their health coverage if they wanted to get funds, uh, they want to have any Medicare funds, which is the major federal health program, that they had to cover more low-income people. That uh, was seen by the court as coercive, but there is no coercion of states here. The states aren't required to do anything. Uh, all the, there's just money being, they're just tax credits for all kinds of cleanup efforts. It's just part of the tax code for, for almost exclusively. So I don't really see the basis 
for challenge, even with this radical, crazy Supreme Court, I, I don't see it succeeding. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> even in West Virginia versus EPA, where they um, overturned the clean power plan that Obama, that already defunct, they announced the clean power plan was no good because it used generation shifting to try to restructure the industry in the court's view. Yeah. That was a ra radical case because they just didn't use normal administrative law principles to decide it. But the concern that was motivating them is they didn't want the agency doing anything as radical as shutting down coal plants without explicit instructions to do so from Congress. Well, that theory is consistent with accepting the tax laws of Congress and the uh, tax credits that Congress decides to enact. I, I don't see much of a hope for Republican challenges to this in the Supreme Court. There's a lot of benefits for fossil fuel industry in this bill. So one of them is there's massive subsidies for carbon capture and storage. And that's, I should imagine that's what one of the things Manchin got that made him go along with this. And so that's, um, you know, a benefit for the fossil fuel industry. There's also a deal that requires separate legislation to facilitate siting of natural gas pipelines. And then the third thing is there's support for hydrogen, which is a path to clean energy that's something that the oil companies can support. And they're, I think they're beginning to look at this as strategic directions that they can go where they can be part of the solution instead of part of the problem and have a future business out of it. So uh, I'm not, and you know, Texas has a really big wind industry. I'm not sure they're going to go hammer and tongs on this. That said, uh, Republican states for a long time have not been really good at doing the kind of thing we need states to do to get clean energy with, on the utility sector, which is mainly to uh, restructure the grid, get interconnections going, have favorable policies that make it easy to site and uh, hook up renewable energy. So they, they may, some of those states may continue to resist that and will slow things down, but that's not anything new. And uh, I can't see them objecting to their companies getting tax credits. And actually, smart advocates, I, the advocates around Syracuse have been successful in getting solar installations and other things, mostly solar, in conservative Republican towns in, around Syracuse, where I live, and which is in upstate New York. And they've done it. They never talk about climate change. They go, go in and say, look, we got a project that's a great economic development opportunity for you. Okay. And they get cooperation. So it sounds like people really yeah. uh, have a good to argue that we can use the federal money to develop our community and the local economies. We don't see uh, directly about the climate change address and the mitigation. But we just want to grow our jobs, yeah. right? Grow the econ uh, community. And uh, I think ab about this law, uh, we have to think about the uh, fundraising, if I uh, can see. The energy part of the bill is to spend right. uh, a huge amount of money. I think it's more than 70% of the uh, bill money goes to the climate-related things. Right. And you have to... Uh, make the balance of the budget, right? On the one time, you want to spend more in climate-related issues. Same time, you have to save money from the previous expenditure because uh, the U.S. spends about 17 to 18% of GDP on 
health expenditure. That's the biggest in the world. Uh, and also, uh, you have to raise the tax from uh, companies in, or rich people in order right. to, to give the money that you need to the climate. Yeah, so the, the, that's the beauty of the bills. It, 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 they're going to be accused of being inflationary, which is why they call it the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, because the Republicans think every time you spend government money, it's inflationary. But really, uh, it's inflationary where you don't pay for it. And this bill, they're paying for it with these tax increases. And they're providing cost savings in other parts of the economy. So, you know, it's plausible to call, call it an Inflation Reduction Act. I don't think it's going to have any big effect on inflation one way or another, but it's an advance in policy. We need more of that because, and I, I think this is part of the climate justice thing that people are talking about. There's a lot of that in this bill. Um, so it's, I've written a, an article called um, toward the populist political economy of climate change. And the, the, article, the argument I made there was that, in fact, if you look around the world at really ambitious climate programs, they're usually not only about climate, they're about other things. And, and you know, they can be about a lot of different things. So like biofuels in Brazil was part of the agricultural policy, the French nuclear fleet, which you don't think of as a climate policy because it's built long before climate was an issue, but they have extremely low utility emissions. And that was a matter of national pride. So there are all sorts of populist causes. And so the Green New Deal concepts are being put forward few years ago in Congress, sort of reoriented this toward, look, we have to have a broad view of justice here. This is not just about climate, it's about economic equality. And you see that in the bill, both in the fact that the taxes are focused on corporations and the rich, and there would have been more of them, but for cinema uh, of Arizona got some, some good progressive measures out of the bill. And there's also um, lots of provisions in the bill where you get more subsidy you either have to pay the prevailing wages or there's insistence on prevailing wages and not just the minimum wage and um, apprenticeship programs as condition of qualifying for tax credits. Mm -hmm. So they're insisting on a certain amount of equity in how the workforce is treated. Mm -hmm. and, and this is, um, you know, part of the push to have a just transition uh, to cleaner energy. And so there's a, a justice aspect of this, I think, is appealing uh, and important uh, to solving this problem. Is you can't just throw fossil fuel workers out of the out of their jobs and not have anything to offer people, and you can't do this in a way that stokes inflation at a time when inflation is so high. Yeah, that, that's what I understand about the beauty of the American uh, legislation uh, system, because you cannot uh, overlook the interest of the a minority, uh, <laughs> like the two senators from West Virginia and Arizona, they can make big difference to uh, move the law more balanced. Because when we talk about climate change and climate justice, we definitely cannot overlook or ignore the social justice or just transition uh, in terms of energy transition. You, you don't say, okay, uh, in order to keep uh, the climate safe, the fossil fuel industry have to be uh, sacrificed. That's not the case, definitely not the case in, in, in the US. So I think that the laws that we talked about today and also uh, a few other laws like gun control, uh, like um, the CHIP Science Art, uh, Act, talking about the more 
uh, economic incentive to support the uh, uh, semiconductors manufacturing in the US and others uh, definitely can really help Democrats party to position itself in a uh, very better uh, position in the midterm uh, election. So the election is a great test for the new president, uh, Biden in the power for about nearly two years. So it's a great test and also influence the next two years legislation. So what do you think about the midterm election? Uh, what kind of outcome could be? Well, it's very hard to know. Um, you know, the fact is, so these issues should make a difference. The other thing that's making a difference is the Supreme Court's ruling taking away the right to abortion. That has a lot of people very angry. Um, and that's not, that's a liability for the Republican Party, as most people support abortion rights. Now, how it'll play out is very difficult. You know, there's a lot of uh, political science which shows that most people don't know nearly as much about American politics as you do. Nowhere near. They, and they don't know issues. They don't know policy. They vote on basis of sort of tribal affiliation. And, uh, you know, the, the Republicans are a party largely of Trump. It's become a personality cult with no policy views at all. And, and, and those folks. So it, it's an open question. And, and I guess the other thing that's happening that could hurt Trump is that he might be indicted and he's certainly being exposed for uh, being an autocrat in, in the January 6th hearings, which will uh, continue, uh, I think, pretty soon. So there, there's going to be some opportunities for the Democrats. How, you know, I think the big lesson of the Inflation Reduction Act is politics is very unpredictable. So I hesitate to predict. <laughs> <laughs> to do to the election, yeah, uh, but, but uh, you know, it 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 does give the Democrats a better chance, and whether they are able to hold on to the majorities, I don't know. But you're you're absolutely right that it's critical to Biden be able to move forward in the in this last two years. Yeah, thank you so much for for your uh, insights, and uh, it's it's a wonderful uh, conversation. Uh, by the end of this. Uh, talk, I think uh, I would uh, like you to give our audience a very short, short thought and about your new book. The book was published in 2021 and on, uh, by Stanford University Press. Uh, the title is The Specter of Dictatorship, Judicial Enabling of Presidential Power. Uh, the title is very interesting, uh, at least to me, because uh, for me, who is living uh, outside the U.S., although I like to observe the politics of U.S., but it's hard for me to connect U.S. politics with dictatorship. So uh, although I haven't uh, read this book, but I think uh, I will do it in the near future. And But uh, I would like you, as an author of this book, to give our audience a very brief uh, idea what you are arguing or what the main uh, finding from, from your uh, writing? Well, the goal of the book was to look at how separation of powers can help preserve a democracy or help bring it down. And it does this primarily by looking at the, the, the losses of democracy in Hungary, Turkey, and to some extent Poland, with some references to Nazi Germany. 
And what you find is that um, in all cases, a big feature of uh, Democratic decline is an assertion of the chief executive's power over the entire executive branch. So in well-functioning democracies, the, the head of state does not have control over electoral commissions, does not have control over media authorities. He does not have control over uh, prosecution services. And there, there are some sort of independence or multi-party arrangements so that these institutions are independent. You get honest elections, a rule of law, uh, and freedom of the press out of that. It's very important. And what you see is that people want to establish dictatorships and find a way of getting control over these bureaucracies and start using them to uh, reward their friends and punish their enemies. And so that's a major lesson of the book. There's also an analysis of the U.S. democratic decline. And uh, I, I think of us as very similar to Poland, not quite as far gone as Hungary or Turkey. But um, our, our democracy has declined. All the political science says that when you have very severe party polarization of democracy is in trouble, norms of respect for the minority party are eroding. The, the judiciary is partially captured. Uh, so there, there are all sorts of uh, signs of uh eroding democracy in the U.S. And the, you know, the most prominent one, which has been more evident since the book came out, is the refusal to accept a peaceful transfer of power. That's not the way democracies work. So the, the, the book is focused on the Supreme Court jurisprudence on separation of powers and emergency powers, which can accelerate the decline of a democracy. Yeah. So what I want to ask, based on your uh, book, do you think America as a democratic society, a, a democracy, is still in the safe zone? What I mean safe zone means it's still in the right spectrum because democracy is up and down. It, it's normal because uh, we, 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 we cannot predict the result of the economics and the politics. But as long as some conditions or some boundaries are not crossed, not to be crossed, the democracy is still in a very relatively safe zone. So my question is that, do you think America democracy is still in the safe zone or is in the close to the right lines or close to the boundary of the safe democracy? Well, I think we're, we're close to losing it. Um, and, and whether we do so or not depends largely on whether Trump gets elected. If Trump is elected, I think American democracy is finished. It will take a long time to finish it, but um, it, it won't happen overnight. But it will happen. So I, and there's going to be an attempt to steal the next election. That's what the Trump's minions are working on. They're trying to replace honest bipartisan commissions of state legislature control over voting. They're trying to restrict voting rights, make it harder for black people and poor people to vote. They're trying to rig the election, uh, the next election. And all the accusations of stolen elections are cover for that. So. Um, I don't know if that will be successful. There's resistance there. Then these efforts have been uneven. But if they are successful, we're in deep trouble. So I think we're I think we're in a pretty bad place. I mean, there's never before in American history that has a substantial my, big minority of people thought that the previous election was stolen and has no faith in it and thinks it all has to change. That's very, very dangerous. Yeah, yeah, that that can produce another episode of the podcast because the polarization of uh, voters' uh, constituency and why so many people still believe in 
the election two years ago was stolen is really hard to understand. But it's definitely is not a small issue. I agree with that. But anyway,、yeah. uh, uh, Professor Jason, it's so pleasure to talk to you. I hope your、uh, Fulbright scholarship in、uh, University of Waterford would be、uh, fruitful, productive, and pleasant. Well, thanks very much. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to talk to you again, and thanks all of you for attending.